You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here this day and happy Mother's Day. We definitely want to share that with those both online and in person today. It's great to celebrate this day and I hope it's not just a day where you go out to brunch, although I'm glad you do that, and maybe go out and do a few other things with your mom, but also a, uh, a time to really share with her personally um, what she has meant to you especially if you've still got her alive, okay? But even if you don't, share with someone else uh, what your mother has meant to you, okay? And I'm glad um, many of you have already been doing that all day, so that's great. Um, we are in our fifth week of a series here on the Book of Acts called Neighbors, Neighborhoods to Nations. Um, and here's the historical reality behind this Neighborhoods to Nations um, theme. And that is, that's kind of the outline of the book of Acts, by the way. So it started in the neighborhoods in Jerusalem. It started at the temple among the disciples following Jesus. They waited for the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus had said, um, as he had commissioned them in uh, the end of Luke and in the beginning of Acts, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's kind of an outline of the whole book from neighborhoods to the nations. Now, did they get it? Not so much, which in one sense is very comforting to me, um, so that, you know, since the disciples didn't quite get it, and it took again and again the Holy Spirit to intervene for them to get it and understand it, um, that, uh, that helps me understand, because I don't, I don't know if we get all the implications of this amazing gospel message we had. The re reality is, though, the early church did expand explosively in the first three centuries. And they did it because they did, slowly but surely, by the gift of the Spirit, get it. Get that this message was not just for people like them, with people with a background and understanding like they had, but it was also for anyone, anywhere, and everywhere. This week we're looking at another case of that. Next week, we get an even more profound case of that when we look at the Church of Antioch. So, um, <clears throat> and this happened in the background, as we've said in the past, against a church that was misunderstood, this Christian gospel, misunderstood by people outside of it. No one was a strong, they had, no, they had no marketing campaign, they had no buildings, they had nobody of great influence that was involved, nobody was pushing it for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet it grew explosively. And I think if we follow their pattern, if we understand the implications of the gospel, in our day and age, I am hopeful, even in a culture, as you know, across the world, but in the United States, where both church membership has declined and um, basic uh, understandings of the faith have declined in our society, we, I am hopeful that we can see in our lifetime a huge expansion of gospel ministry if we understand it fully and properly, okay? So we're going to be looking now at the implications of the gospel today that the disciples, Peter specifically, didn't get it until he got it. 
I know that's it's kind of, but you'll see it kind of in this text. And we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 10. It's kind of a long story. I could have actually started a lot before this because Peter, um, prior to this, um, has a couple of visions that God has been giving to him. And then after, it took, yeah, but we're only going to try to do this section when he finally shows up at a Roman centurion's house and what happens there. Okay, so we read in Acts 10, starting, I believe, at verse 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa, for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. <clears throat> so I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Huh, now that's a setup I'd love someday. <laughs> you know, wow! You're... And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. <clears throat> then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So the book of Acts sets out a number of case studies, one in a row after another. Luke is kind of making an argument all the way through the book of Acts of how the, 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 the Christian movement, the followers of Jesus are not 
a harm to society. They're not disruptors in one sense of society, and yet they turn everything upside down in culture, and they serve society and bring it to its fulfillment and where God intends it to be. And one of the things that we find out is that in the book of Acts as well, when the church grew and was the most vital, it grew often, like in this case, through the conversion of unexpected people. That it was shocking at times. It was stunning that what happened, that, that uh, God was doing something and amazingly, it was always to people they were scratching. Wait a minute, I didn't think. Last week we looked at the fact that it was an Ethiopian eunuch. Someone totally out of the picture. Nobody would have expected. Nobody, um, Philip himself, who was the evangelist who shared that gospel, um, wouldn't have gone in that direction, wouldn't have done it except for an angel telling him to go to that road in the Gaza Strip, and then to come up, the Holy Spirit saying, come alongside that chariot to talk to this man. So it was an unexpected person there. And here we find, as well, <clears throat> an unexpected person, this Roman centurion. And what this all underscores, I think, again and again, and you could look at other ones that we're not actually preaching on, like the conversion of the Samaritans. They were hated by the Jews. Or even the conversion of Paul, Saul, who became Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, legalistic, upright, righteous, etc. What you find in all of these instances, though, is that the conversion happens, and you could say nobody was naturally born into a Christian faith. Now, I know I, I, I talk to people from my hometown in Michigan, and sometimes they say, I was born in, and what they're saying is, I was born in this church. And it's like, you might have been born into the church or a family that went to church, but you have to be born again into the kingdom of God, no matter what your family background is. Okay? You aren't automatically a part of God's people simply because of your heritage or your race or nationality. It's not by race. It's by grace. Nice little catchphrase you can remember, but I think that's important to understand. It is by God's grace. God's grace is coming for this centurion. God's grace came for the Samaritans. God's grace came for that Ethiopian eunuch. Christianity isn't a set of ideas that you kind of learn and slowly. Um, it is... It's a gospel message, and we're going to talk about what that specific gospel is in a few moments. But a gospel message that takes hold of you, you don't just kind of grab onto a couple concepts. It takes hold of you and changes your life. So in Acts chapter 10, what we're going to look at are these three points, that the faith comes and this conversion comes, but faith basically comes through God's initiative, not yours. It goes to all equally, not to some more favorably than others, and through the gospel, specifically, and not some just kind of generic, abstract goodness or moral teaching or advice. We see that all in this text. First of all, through God's initiative, not yours. <clears throat> you tell the story of your life. If I, I, I don't have a reason to write an autobiography, let me tell you. There's not that much, you know, right, to really share. But a lot of people do. And, you know, who's the center of the autobiography? Me. 
And it's like, I was born here, I decided this, I went to school, I did this. I, and just by that kind of presupposition, I'm the center of my story, and I am almost assuming that everybody agrees in our society that I'm the one that runs the show and made my life turn out the way it did. And if I would write, if we would write about Thrive's existence, or I would write about my life, and I did it, it properly, it would be about what my mother and how my mother helped raise me, my father, my family, my town, my village, my, um, <clears throat> my community, who I had disciple me, how the Holy Spirit worked, what God was doing before I even thought. I mean, if you really write it out properly, I'm not the center of my story. And, neither, and that's a good thing. Oh, it's not up to me. It's by God's initiative. Yeah. Uh, the book of Acts, good example, all the way through. I know we call it Acts of the Apostles. I'm not sure who titled it that. Luke, who wrote it, didn't title it that. It probably would have been better to call it Acts of, the Jesus, uh, of Jesus Christ Continued, on from the Gospel of Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, or maybe Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because you will see he's the actor all the way through. He's the one that initiates. Here in this text, it comes up again. You know, um, <clears throat> Peter asks the question when he arrives in our text. He says, may I ask why you sent me? And Cornelius says, well, three days ago I was praying and an angel told me to send for you. Do you understand? God is the one who set this up in the book of Acts. It's the angel who told Cornelius to fetch for Peter. Now, we might not always see this in our lives, but the book of Acts makes it explicit that God is working in your life before you even know it. And God is the one who arranges a lot of these things in your life. I remember, <laughs> I am dating myself. Oof. Back in the 1970s, I think it was 1976 or so, some of you remember those? Yeah, right? There was this huge movement within, I think, uh, born-again Christianity, evangelicalism, where you put this bumper sticker on your car that said, anybody remember what it said? I found it. Do you remember that? I found it. And I guess it was a kind of a way to try to start a conversation. Uh, <clears throat> but it's terrible theology. I found it. There's no it. Do you understand? Um, actually, if I, wa I was found, <laughs> I was lost, but now, you know, God isn't lost. I was. And God is not an it. I just don't, but that was our way of kind of putting ourselves in the center of the story again. I'm the one who did it. Um, and you want to read as, I know, I'm, I'm off tan. You're used to this, Linda. I get up. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis is a fascinating story in how God decenters him from himself. At the beginning of the story, he has dreams where all his brothers bow down to him. And he's arrogant enough to tell them, 
what he dreamed. Hey, you're all going to bow down to me. And that he expects they're going to be happy with that? I don't think so. But anyways, by the time the end of the story comes, he goes through all of these things, you know, prison, everything. And at the end of the story, when he's before Pharaoh to try to interpret another dream, he basically says, I'm not the center. This is a God thing. He is now orbiting around his God. He doesn't have God orbiting around him anymore. You know, I know a lot of people think, uh, oh, well, I've got to discover, I've got to do, I've got to figure out, I've got to f- find. And, if, and so many sermons in so many different churches today are all the how you have to do this and then do that and do that. It's like you're the center of your own faith. No, you aren't. God is. And we can rejoice in that. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Um, C.S. Lewis was an uh, an agnostic, an atheist, someone who was trying to figure out God. And yet he came, uh, and he's written some great books. In one of them he said, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God to me as then I was then. They may as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Did you get it? God has been searching for you longer before you ever even thought about him. Jesus put it this way to his disciples. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. God is at work. God is at work before you even consider it. If, if, so this is good news, actually, for any of you online or in person here. If you are like having this hunger for God or you're trying to find a little more, or you're thinking about it, it's like, man, I've, 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 my life's kind of been a mess. I need to start. Guess who's been initiating all of that? God is searching for you right now. He is finding you. He's drawing you to himself. He's the one that's initiating. So don't like freak out and get so anxious about how I might not see how I'm not fine. He is coming to you. He searches for you. God wants to find you more than you would ever want to find him. That's such good news. We're going to have an implication of this. Um, There's a book by a pastor friend of mine. Well, I know him. I know him better than he knows me. I mean, I've read his book. I've heard Greg speak. Greg Finke wrote this one called Joining Jesus in the Mission Field. And basically it's saying the whole book is like God is already at work in the lives of people. What you do is you just come alongside of them and find out what God is already doing and you just witness to that. It's not like you have to come and kind of convert. You don't convert anybody. The Holy Spirit's going to do that. You just join him and find places where God is at work in people's lives and then witness to it. And that's what we see with Philip last week. He came alongside this Ethiopian eunuch whom God was already working in. And Cornelius, another example, Peter didn't convert him. Peter didn't have to argue. It was a setup, man. (laughs) God set it all up. So faith comes through God's initiative, not yours. Secondly, to all equally, not just some more favorably. Now this, this is where Peter didn't get it, okay? And it took quite a bit for Peter to get it. I love this. It happens a couple of times. You can read in the book of Galatians, Paul has to confront Peter about his, um, 
uh, separating himself from Gentiles. So it wasn't just a once and done that he got it. You know, there are a number of times that Peter was kind of acting, um, well, I'm not so sure. He understood the gospel. He believed the gospel, but he didn't understand the implications of the gospel. And so three times, Peter has this dream of this huge sheet coming down from heaven and all these animals, some clean and unclean, are on it. And God says, Peter, eat. You know, eat whatever you want. And Peter, I will never touch anything unclean. Three times, God has to say what he finally says in Acts 10, 15, this. What God has made clean, do not call common. Don't call it unclean. Three times. Interesting, isn't it? Three times Peter gets this vision. Because three times Peter denied Jesus. And three times Jesus reinstated him, forgave him in the Gospel of John. And it takes three times for anything to seem to sink in to Peter's skull. And only when he comes into Cornelius' house and he sets it up and says, you know, I'm not supposed to be here because a Jew shouldn't come in that Peter finally opens his mouth after he hears Cornelius' story of how God, call, God initiated this, and he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality or favoritism. And that word partiality or favoritism is this wonderfully long Greek word, pros, prosopoleptes, prosopoleptes. <clears throat> God doesn't show like, a, God doesn't discriminate. He doesn't go like, oh, that person looks like, hmm, let's, no. God doesn't uh, pick and discriminate by appearances or by background or play favorites or be partial to some over others. Coming from a Jewish man in the first century, this is shocking. Because Peter was raised like everybody that the children of Israel God called specifically Abraham, and then he called Isaac, and then he called Jacob, who became Israel, and we are the elect, the chosen people above all nations. It's all nations who are going to stream to us someday. It's all nations who are going to see that we're the center of God's plan, and God is now decentering Peter from that. God is decentering Peter to say, oh, it's not about my ethnicity. It's not about my heritage. God shows no partiality. He's not playing favorites. He used Israel. We were chosen by God for the sake of God then choosing everyone from all backgrounds. Now, those who came with Peter, I think, had a little more difficult time and we see that in um, Acts 10, 45, it says, and the believers from among the circumcised, so they were Jewish people as well who came with Peter, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And the word for amazed, I found, was very, very particular. It's the word ex, exastime, okay? And Istemi is from the word to be, and X is outside. It's to be outside of yourself. It's like, have you ever like, felt like, whoa, outside of yourself in a situation? It's, in other words, it's really uh, totally taken back, flabbergasted, shocked, a 
astounded. And we see throughout the New Testament, time and again, when Jesus did something, ex me. What? They were shocked. When Jesus walks on water, the disciples were astounded. When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, her parents were shocked and astounded. <clears throat> when he forgave somebody their sins, the Pharisees were offended and shocked and taken aback by that. So it's not just, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's wonderful. It's a, what in the, is going on here? The gospel is unexpected again and again when it hits and comes home to people. And I would say even in our day and age, we might be shocked and astounded at what God may do in the lives of people we'd never expect him to be working. We'd go like, wait a minute, uh, that can't... Hey, it's God. God can do what God wants to do. And we better get along with his program instead of trying to tell him what he should and shouldn't be doing. So the early church, it was underscored again and again in texts like this, that nobody has the inside track with God. No one gets to bargain from a position of power with God. No one gets a better deal. No one is a favorite. <laughs> you know, in a sense, it's like that commercial, I think it's State Farm, there is no Aaron Rodgers rate, you know. He doesn't get Mahone deal. Oh, nobody gets, it's like, you don't, Yet, because of whatever, who you happen to be, you get a better... No, God plays no favorites. And you can be astounded that you are treated the same as somebody who's like, what? They did that? And yes, that's the gospel. Pastors aren't closer to God. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and people of America are not closer to God. We are not favorites of God. God plays no favorites among the nations or among the peoples. The rich, the poor, the moral, the immoral, no one gets a special deal. We all come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the only way. So how does this all really work? Like I said, it's through the gospel specifically and not some generic kind of God loves you um, abstractly. It's through the gospel specifically, point three. What do you mean by that? Well, we got a problem. And I dare say, even people who are outside of the Christian faith in the United States would, would agree with the problem, to an extent. If you'd go out to the uh, streets and ask the question of this, hey, what's the biggest... Human beings trying to play God. Do you think people try to play God? They go like, oh, yeah. You know, kind of the Tears for Fear song. Everybody wants to rule the world. Sing it along. You know, everybody wants to rule the world. Everybody wants to be in charge. Everybody wants to tell everybody else what to do. And we can see that in other people very easily. And a lot of people would say, yeah, I know. People are playing like they're God. That's the problem. I can see it in everybody but myself. But it is a human condition. And now, there's two ways that this happens, actually. Um, the scriptures will tell us, and a lot of Christian preachers over the years have said, one way to try to play God is to try to make up your own rules 
or no rules at all. Say, hey, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Don't tell me what to do. You hear people talking that way today? Yeah, just a little. Don't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. I am free. There's no such thing as guilt. There's no such thing. I can live whatever way I want. The problem with that is you really can't. <clears throat> you might think you can break the rules, but they still come back for you. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, that's kind of the way of irreligion, and a lot of people are trying to do that. And what you do is you kind of become a criminal. You know, you break the rules. You actually um, claim your own individual freedom above everybody else, and you kind of trample on any duties you might have to other people. It's like, yeah, whatever. Now, the other side of the coin is uh, you can also play by the rules, and you're still trying to play God. You go like, what? Yeah. That is, you can become a self-righteous, stuck-up stuck up Pharisee, Someone who lives by the rules and looks around and then looks at everybody else who doesn't and judges them critically. And as long as you're keeping the rules better than others, man, that's a nice position to be in. But the problem with it is once you break the rules, all of a sudden that judgment comes back on yourself and you're going like, ugh. So that's the way of religion. And we've got the way of irreligion. And the gospel is neither of these. Neither of these. Now, here's the hard part for a lot of people with, that are church-going type people, because of those two options, we tend to be the people who try to keep the rules and follow the rules. And the tendency for us is to fall into that pharisaical trap. And sometimes that's the hardest one to get rid of, because it's like, well, but I am better than other people. I'm no mafia don. I didn't murder anybody. I'm not in jail. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. It's so much easier to fall into that. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis knew that. He wrote this book. It's, it's very thin. It's, it's a metaphor. It's called The Great Divorce. And it's not about marriage. <laughs> okay? And it's not a, the divorce is the split between heaven and hell. That's the divorce. And it's a metaphor. And it's not really about the afterlife. It's really about how we end up where we end up, okay, in the afterlife. And it's this fictional bus ride from hell to heaven. <laughs> it would be by bus, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, but. Uh, these people from hell get to heaven and they start talking to others that they knew. And in this one instance, I think we find out what it's like for someone to try to play God and play this moral card, not necessarily the Ten Commandments, but that I'm good enough and I should be here by my own rights. So I'd like to read a little section of that, okay? <clears throat> and uh, the ghost is the person from hell that's come there because they become insubstantial by how sin has affected them. And the person in heaven, his friend and coworker, is more solid. This is part of that metaphor that he uses. So the ghost says this, what I'd like to understand is what you're here for. Because pleased as punch you, a bloody murderer, while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years, personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Look at me now. 
the ghost, slapping his chest, but the slap made no noise. I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults far from it, but I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by right. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it, and I took my wages. I'd done my job, see? That's the sort of <clears throat> I was, and I don't care who knows it. But I got to have some rights, same as you, see? And his friend responds, oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or should I not be here? You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. The ghost responds, what do you keep arguing for? I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody else's bleeding charity. And his friend says, then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking. Nothing can be bought. The ghost says, I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I've been here long ago, and I can tell them I said so. The other shook his head, no, you can never do that like that. I'd rather be damned, the ghost said, than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see, not to go sniveling along on charity tied to your apron springs. I'll go home. I didn't come to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. That's just one instance of it, uh, in that book, but it points to the fact that religion is a way of trying to claim our rights before God by our merits. And you try to do that, you're actually playing God. And you're not going to be doing a good job of that. The gospel is not about moralism and religion, and it's not about irreligion and libertinism. The gospel is something totally different. It's the gift, the promise of who Jesus is and what he did in your place. And that's exactly what Peter preached. He didn't just talk about God loving, God showing no partiality and stop there. This is what Acts 10, 37 to 41 says. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead. Notice how specific this is. Peter is sharing his eyewitnesses account. He's sharing that Jesus lived the perfect life in your place. He died the complete death when he didn't deserve it. And he was raised to new life. And we even ate and drank with him specifically and were able to touch him and hold onto him and hear him and know him. The specific gospel of Jesus Christ is what's going to save anybody. His perfect place in our place, his complete sacrifice, his resurrection. Again and again, you will read through the book of Acts. It always talks about his death and his resurrection as the message that changes people's lives. <clears throat> so don't expect your friends or your family members or anybody you might be praying for. First of all, expect that God is working in their lives before you even think about it. But don't expect that some generic God loves you is going to save them. Or some, well, I'm praying for you. Those are great things. Say that, but get specific. Tell them about Jesus. 
Tell them about who he is, what he specifically did for them. That's how it works. And a couple implications of this whole message. First of all, A, don't call anybody unclean. So you might have some people that you're looking at going like, well, I just don't see how they are such a mess. Yeah, it's amazing how Jesus cleans up mess. Don't call anyone unclean. Don't call yourself unclean. I know. I know too many Christians. I know myself. We have the temptation to say, oh my, I can't, God, this, ugh, I don't know how, we, we, how in the world could God forgive me? I just don't, I can't believe how I, we call ourselves unclean. It ain't so. God has forgiven you. God has cleansed you. God has changed that whole relationship. And he did it in an amazing way. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin. You could say dirty, dirt, horrible. Who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God that is cleansed, perfect, purified. No one is unclean. When you see Jesus' ultimate substitute for you and the hellish agony he went through that changes your heart, opens you up, that's the power of the gospel that changes lives. And I think the second point comes along with it is that we all need the gospel to keep changing us. And that came out with Peter himself, right? Look at this. Here he is, the number uno one apostle among all the apostles. And, and yet he's the one who doesn't quite get that God's word is going to come to the Gentiles and to everyone universally. <clears throat> he's still trying to treat people a bit differently from their ethnic background. And we see Cornelius and that whole story. He is converting, the convert is converting the evangelist, Peter. Having shared the gospel with Cornelius changed Peter. That Peter had some latent racism, some nationalism, some ethnocentrism in him. Even as an apostle. And God was going to work that out and decenter him from all of those things. You know, it's amazing. Well, when we do share the gospel with others, it's not from a position of power or superiority with anyone. We don't know any more than anybody else. We aren't smarter than. We're not moral, more moral. It, we're, we're, it's always from the position of a servant. And that has power. That has power. That's the power. Peter's not the center of the story. Cornelius isn't even the center of the story. It's the fact that God has promised and God is delivering and God is working through his spirit to bring the gospel from neighborhoods to all the nations through God's initiative, not ours, to all equally, not some more favorably, and through the gospel specifically, not being good or moral or generic, abstract versions. Let's pray.
Lord God, we want to join you on your mission field. Holy Spirit, we know that you are working in this world and that you are grieving about this world right now. There are so many situations, so much conflict, so much division, so much. We're seeing what the human condition is like every day around us, Lord, and we see it in ourselves. You don't show favorites, Lord. You want us all in your kingdom. You want everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, there may be some here right now that have felt like they were just too unclean, <laughs> that walking through the door might cause problems, that others could see right through them at just what they've thought or done, Lord. No, but you have. You've seen them for who they are. You love them and forgive them for who they've been, and you are going to make them into something new and wonderful and great, Lord. That's the power of your gospel. It changes each one of us. We are born again into it. And we pray, Lord God, as well, that you give us eyes like Jesus to see people different from us, that you take out any uh, biases that we may have, any judgments that are not really from you, Lord, anything that would filter out. Uh, help us to see, Lord, the people around us this week that you want, that you've been working in their lives and that you would use us in some small way to witness to you, Jesus, and that you give us uh, the courage and the wisdom to speak that. And Lord God, um, this day, there's so many things to celebrate. We do celebrate our mothers, many of whom shared that faith specifically with us, who modeled that faith throughout life <laughs> in so many ways. We thank you for that. We pray they would be honored this day. We also lift up to you, O Lord, a number of people in our congregation who are uh, facing illness and difficulty and surgery and recovery. We lift up to you, Chris Rodriguez. We ask you to bless her this Mother's Day and the family and be with them and give your healing presence there. For Rachel in California, we just pray, Lord God, your healing on this Mother's Day. And for Kai, her son as well, Lord, both suffering from cancer. We lift up to you, Bill Watson, and pray, Lord, for Chari on this Mother's Day too and their kids, that you would just bless them and bring your healing there. Thank you for how you've knit them together as a family. We lift up to you, Evelyn, on this Mother's Day, who is still recovering, Lord. And now as she's going back to work and trying to have everything together for her children, we just pray your power and peace would be upon her. Lord God, for Tyler as he's recovering, for many others, Lord, anyone in their needs, for those who are facing in our community yet financial struggles as a result of the last year or more. We pray that you give hope, that you help us to come alongside of them, to share, and uh, give us the wisdom to know how we can join you, Lord, in mission with them and with others, how we can serve more effectively. Lord, bless this time as we come towards the conclusion of this worship and that we receive specifically and tangibly, Lord, your presence in an amazing way as you offered yourself specifically to your disciples. We ask that you would uh, truly help us to receive and receive everything that you are. So bless us for that. Forgive us, O Lord, for our sins. <laughs> we have failed. We are, in one sense, totally unworthy, and yet you make us worthy through your forgiveness and grace, and you invite us to the table. So bless us, Lord, in that as well. 
All this we lift up to you, Lord Jesus, in your precious name, the name above every name. Amen.